But as touching brotherly love, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Welcome back to Bible time. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would help all those that are here, all those that will hear this message online. Lord God, all those that will hear it in any form or fashion, Lord, to love as brethren, to be pitiful, to be courteous. Lord God, I pray that you would um, unify the hearts of your believers, Lord. Lord, all across this world. Lord, we think of the believers, Lord, who are overseas, Lord, in Russia and Ukraine right now as their countries are at war. Lord God, we pray that you would give a sense of love and forgiveness between those um, Christians, Father, and Lord, that you would um, punish the evildoers, Father. Punish those who are using their power, Lord God, in a way that is ungodly. We pray, Lord God, that you would bring peace, Father, and that you would allow us to live quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and honesty. We love you today in Jesus' holy name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 4 9, we have a pivot point here in the chapter as he says, but as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you that the word but is kind of a pivot. It means you've heard this, but this. So we're going this way. Now we're going that way. And this really is a pivot point in the last several verses, particularly verses three through eight. We've had five verses that primarily dealt with, um, sinful failures of brotherly love and exhorted the church at Thessalonica to exercise brotherly love and to protect brotherly love by first abstaining from fornication, um, possessing your vessel, not in the lust of concupiscence, not defrauding your brother avoiding uncleanness, not despising one another. All of these were dangers to brotherly love that the church at Thessalonica was exhorted to avoid, and through them all of us are today. And that is a key you must always remember with the Word of God as you understand the context. It's important to understand the context, but there's an extreme out there of contextualizing away the Scripture, and you also don't want to do that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for exhortation in righteousness. And it's that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. If you allow people to steal the Bible from you by saying this was written to Thessalonica, so it doesn't apply to you, you have gone too far with context. But the context is necessary to understand the Word of God. And you, but just don't let the context be taken to the extreme of stealing the Scriptures from you. It applies. The word of God applies to you. This applies to you. So in this study, as we've looked through these other verses, we've picked up many helpful, positive instructions throughout the Word of God. Jesus commanded in John 15 um, that we love one another. He said... Um, even as I have loved you. It's pretty um, impossible command that Jesus gave there apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. And there in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And there's a reference to those commands like those of John 15, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 17, where he says to love one another even as he loved us and gave himself for it, the, for us. Next verse here in First Thessalonians 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Keeping Christ's commandments depends upon sanctification, separation unto God, not separation from sin in and of itself, but separation unto God. And that is where the power comes from it to keep his commandments is to be separated unto God and thereby 
I tapped into the source of the power. He said, abide in me and ye shall bring forth much fruit. As the branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine, so neither can ye except ye abide in me. That's um, probably messed up that verse, but it's there in John 16. So here we have the sanctification that's required to keep Christ's commands. But then he says to abstain from fornication. And we looked at that in detail. Ephesians 5, go there real quick. We want to just touch touch it from a different perspective and move on today. Uh, We're looking at brotherly love primarily here. We don't want to um, revisit all of this right now, though it's all good. Here he says in um, Ephesians 5... Ephesians 5, and we'll probably see this again um, later, but he says, um, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice unto God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become the saints. When we studied this, we found that there was... Um, we found in that study, uh, as we studied the negative of fornication, we found much to show us the necessity of sanctification. So we gleaned a lot of positive truth from a very negative commandment that we should abstain from fornication. Both are necessary. The positive truth and the negative commandments to abstain from things are both um, both necessary in the Word of God. And this brings us to an important observation here in Ephesians 5 um, that relates to brotherly love here, and that is that brotherly love is not always easy. It says in verse 7, be not ye therefore partakers with them. The world teaches that love can only be positive. The love teaches, the world teaches that love can never have negative reproof, negative exhortation, negative rebuke, um, negative outworking, like separation and cutting off and turning over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God teaches the exact opposite. Um, we, We might look at that more later. In fact, all of these all of these different aspects we can see we can see here that there is in each of these um, an application to brotherly love. If you fornicate, you are not loving. To love is to not fornicate. To love is to be sanctified. To love is to keep Christ's commandments. We're exhorted in verse one to abound more and more, and also in verse ten we'll look at that more, Lord willing, tomorrow. Um, also, the um, to have pureness of heart. The um, Verse four over there, we need our moderation to be known to all men to in order to possess our vessel. If you do not possess your vessel, you are not loving. To possess your vessel is to love. And this can be something as simple as a fellowship meal, um, which is given in 1 Corinthians 11, whenever they gathered there for a communion service. Go ahead and turn there real quick. They gathered together for a communion service. He said, some of you go through and eat everything. And then there's nothing left for the people at the back of the line. So this could be a communion service or a fellowship meal. It could be something as simple as this. If you don't possess your vessel, if you don't let your moderation be known to all men, then you're a reproach and you shame them that have not. That's what he says here. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So loving one another is esteeming others more than yourself and possessing your vessel. Basically self-control. A lack of self-control is a lack of love. The root problem behind a lack of self-control is a lack of love. If you can't keep yourself from belching out in a rude manner at the dinner table, it's because you don't love the people that you're eating with. Now, maybe you're Japanese, and in the old world, at least older world of of Japan, I don't know if it's still this way or not, if you wanted to express your gratitude to the cook, you would burp nice and heartily, and they expected a nice belch at the dinner table from the head man in order to let the cooks know that they did a good job. So there's some variance there in cultures, and some of you are kind of grinning about that, like that's weird, but they probably think we're weird in a lot of other ways too. But in any case, the the basic concept here is self-control. Possess your vessel. Possess your vessel. Do not be uncontrollable. Do not be a loose cannon. Do not just fly off the handle. Love, brotherly love, will control itself. So there's all of this this positive inference and this pivot of our verse here, the pivot point in this chapter in verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. The pivot point is that he's saying, I've told you not to do these things, but now I'm pointing you to brotherly love. Why is that? Because brotherly love takes care of all of this. I think I have the verse written down in here somewhere, but I have so many verses, I don't know that we'll get to all of them. And it says, the word of God says that if you love one another, this is the fulfilling of the law. This is the keeping of the law. You don't need to be told to abstain from fornication if you are actively practicing brotherly love. You're not going to take your sister in the Lord and use her for your personal gratification against the law of God and offend her weak conscience, cause her to stumble and to commit an act of sin with you if you love her. You say, well, not my sister in the Lord, but the lost are fair game. Well, how perverted and sick would that be? The lost are on their way to a devil's hell. And you want to say that you love that person you're fornicating with when they're on their way to a devil's hell and every kiss and every touch and every immoral act that you commit with them only pushes them further and harder and faster towards the lake of fire and makes the cause of Christ and the gospel of Christ a joke and a sham to them. It's the purest expression of hate. Love is not always as it seems, but as God says that it is. And here in Ephesians 5, it says, let no man deceive you with vain words for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. It says, to walk as children of the light, verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. No fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, all of this has to be done being filled with the Spirit in the context. Ephesians 5.18 gives us that. And then um, there's much more that we can get into there. We're going to skip it and move on. 1 Corinthians 5 deals with a man who was in living in fornication. He had his father's wife and the church was puffed up and they said, come as you are, go as you came. Just make sure you show up for our events so we can at least count your nose. If you don't give money, we can at least impress some rich people with all the lost people that we have walking around 
around in desperate need and extort money from some rich people to give money liberally to the church, if we at least can show you and take pictures of you with your tattoos and your earrings and your ACDC shirt and all of your desperate need, we can at least use you for our financial gain. So please at least come. At least show up in your sin. We don't ask you to change. We don't ask you to alter your behavior. We're not going to impose any restrictions or limitations in you on you. And we're going to call that love because Jesus was a friend of sinners and Jesus loved the sinner. So therefore, we're going to love the sinner by not telling them the truth. Now, I don't know where you get that because Jesus Christ preached hard. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you commit adultery with her already in your heart. And then he said, if your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. Jesus Christ preached about hell. He preached about it over and over and over again as a place of eternal torment where the worm dieth not. He said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now there came a time in Jesus' ministry where the loving who and he is loving Jesus is the embodiment of love God is love and Jesus is God in the flesh but Jesus was told about some people who a tower had fallen upon and he said oh let's have a moment of solidarity put the flag at half mass let's burn some candles and have a moment of silence no nothing like that do you know what Jesus Christ the embodiment of love did when a natural disaster and tragedy claimed the lives of many people in his area, he said this to them, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And he preached to them and warned them of eternal death. And he used the tragedy as a springboard to preach the hellfire of God and the damnation and wrath of almighty God against sinners. So love is not always in the eye of the beholder unless the beholder be God himself because God is the one that determines love. Now in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul said to turn that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The apostle Paul, who in the same book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians, would write um, the love chapter, charity, suffereth long and is kind. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible and its entire emphasis is love. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the epistle of Ephi- of, to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, and in that, in that book, in that little letter to the church at Ephesus, he said that the fruit of the Spirit is love. The Apostle Paul, who said all of these things by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said of that man, I have judged already. I have judged already, he says, to put away from you that wicked person. He says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Love sometimes is tough love. Love isn't always ooey gooey. It's not always gushy. It's not always garland and flowers and mistletoe and kisses under the mistletoe. Love sometimes has to tell the truth and love sometimes has to stand in the face of iniquity and in the face of wickedness and stand against it. The Bible tells us to love our brother and then it says ye shall not suffer sin in your brother. Ye shall love him and in anyways rebuke him the bible says look it up and that is old testament and some of you guys are going to try and contextualize it away but it's a perfect parallel with what we find in the new testament in first corinthians chapter five go to the book of ephesians and chapter four
We're going to look at verse 26. It says here, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now I want you to take this and apply it to the man caught with his father's wife. And this take for a moment where we're commanded to abstain from fornication as Christians and consider a situation where a man is caught in adultery what do you do with that man? Will you um, go to 1 Corinthians 5 one guy would call this church and he said we churched him. I don't really like calling it that. I'd rather call it church judgment like the Bible does. Some people call it um, church discipline but here this think of a man caught in adultery. The Bible says that whenever a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife that that neighbor will ha- be angry and he will not rest content though thou give him many gifts. But here in Ephesians 4, we're commanded to be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. He says, grieve not the spirit of God whereby ye are called. Whereby, I'm sorry, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So here we're called to a higher standard, not only to fornicate, um, to not fornicate, not only are we called to not fornicate and to judge those that do fornicate, but we're also called to not be angry at those that fornicate. Well, that's a whole nother, another level. If you can, if you can overlook the sin, the Bible says love covereth a multitude of sin. It is, it is a honorable thing to be able to cover a sin, but if you then learn that we must judge the sin, the next great pitfall is to become angry and to sin and to let the sun go down upon your wrath. Second Corinthians two says there um, that Paul, when he wrote the letter to Corinth, did it in much heaviness. And he wrote the same lest when I come, he said, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice. He says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly to you. So Paul here said that he wrote that letter to the church at Corinth, not in anger, but in love. The Bible says the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You cannot act in anger and act in love at the same time as a Christian um, by and large. There's a very, 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 very small window for any kind of so-called righteous indignation. It gets quoted often in places that really want to maintain strong standards, it gets quoted as an excuse most of the time to entertain anger, anger. Not only are we to have holy standards, not only are we as an expression of love to judge righteous judgment and judge within our own churches and judge within our homes and judge our own selves and judge righteous judgment. The Bible tells us judge, 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 judge way more than it says judge not. It says judge. You have to rightly divide the word of truth and find the application. When am I to not judge? When am I to judge in order to understand uh, Matthew chapter? Chapter 7, and that's not a cop out, it's just reality. Now, 
Um, here we're told to judge, but then we tend to slip into anger when we begin to judge. God commands us to do it in love. Paul said he wrote with anguish of heart and tears, and he says, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Paul literally said that his love for the church is why he commanded that man to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of flesh. Now, the world doesn't call that love. The world would never call that love. And usually the guy that's living in sin wouldn't want to call it love either. He'll be the guy up there shouting, you're judging your brother. You're setting it not your brother. But you still have to love him. And you have to love him enough to do the right thing even if he doesn't think it's right. And even if nobody else thinks it's right, you've got to do the right thing out of love. And if you love him, you'll do it with anguish. You'll do it with tears. Um, those tears may not be public, by the way. Those tears are more effective and private anyway, pouring out your heart before God in intercession for the man, praying for God to give him life for his sins until he verifies that he is an obdurate, hardened sinner that will not hear rebuke and will not turn. There's much that has to be balanced here in this thing. Um, it's a big topic. But he says, if I have caused any grief, he hath not grieved. If, if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many so that contrary wise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. So the act of judging, Paul said, was love. The act of turning over over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh was done in love. And now the confirmation of that love and that proof of that love is that when this man repented, they were to confirm their love and to receive him again and forgive him. He says, for to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things to whom ye forgive anything I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Let Satan should give get an advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. So there we have this coupled with they be angry and sin not neither give place to the devil. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. He says in Ephesians 4 and verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So this is, this is a huge Task. This is not something that is easy. This is something that goes way beyond a set of rules and regulations. This is brotherly love. This forgiveness. How do you forgive somebody that has committed adultery with your spouse? According to the word of God, you must forgive them. And if you don't, Satan will get the advantage over you and you will end up in sin as much as they do. The Bible says in Galatians, I think it's Galatians, either are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Galatians chapter six and verse one, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and there's that word brethren again, we're going to um, jump into that here in just a minute. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Make a note there. Help me to remember. We need to come back to Galatians 6 whenever we talk about individuality later. Galatians 6. 
and we're going to be there in verse 5 um, and 6 whenever we get back to that on individuality. I'll make a note right here. All right, so here we have this desperately difficult um, responsibility that God has given the brethren, that if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. This judgment that Paul is calling the church at Corinth to is with the express purpose of restoration and reconciliation and a preservation of the unity of the body. All of these things that were mentioned, fornication, failure to possess your vessel, lust of concupiscence, defrauding your brother, uncleanness, despising, these things are a danger to the church. These things destroy the unity, the love, and the uh, oneness of the church, and they cause schisms and all kinds of damage to the body. And God here is calling us to abstain from these things, but then here there's a pivot as touching brotherly love. He's calling us to a higher law. As far as the possessing your vessel, Romans um, chapter 12. (coughs) Go there real quick. Romans chapter 12. Let's look at some positive aspects of the command to to possess your vessel, which is a positive command to possess your vessel. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17 says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So here, this command is that we must live peaceably with all men. This is part of possessing our vessel, and this requires the renewing of our mind back in Romans 12 and verse 2, and the presenting of our bodies a living sacrifice there in 12.1. Now, Um, This pureness of heart that's required to do this, not in the lust of concupiscence, this pureness of heart can be seen in Philippians 4.8. Let's go there real quick. Brotherly love requires a possession of the vessel, a possession of your body, a self-control. You can't go and just gobble down all the food like 1 Corinthians 11, 16 through 22 says. I'll hit that on the way over to Philippians. Um, There he says, when you come together, uh, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? This is this also ties into that despising, which ties into the defrauding. All of the all of these things you see um, tie together. This brotherly love defeats all of these enemies of the church, like this greediness, this covetousness, this um, lack of possession of your vessel, lack of self-control. All of this can be defeated through brotherly love. Now we're on to Philippians 4 and verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So this is what we're called to in the possessing of our vessel, not in the lust of concupiscence. Brotherly love thinks on those things which are true and etc. as we studied there. Go over to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1. 
He says here, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. Brotherly love is what we're talking about. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Brotherly love possesses his vessel towards his neighbors. Brotherly love does not defraud his sisters in the Lord by stealing their hearts. Brotherly love will not steal a young lady's heart from her daddy, even if you're both single and think that you're in love and want to get married. Brotherly love will help that young lady by backing off and giving her time and giving her daddy time and waiting on the Lord. And if it's right, God will bring it to pass and you'll end up married if it's right. Brotherly love will wait. The Bible says love or the world says love can't wait. God says love does wait. And it treats this, the younger ladies as sisters, the older ladies as mothers. It takes a sick man to want to steal a mother from her children and her husband. It takes a sick woman to want to steal a husband and a father from his wife and from his children. You cannot love people and act that way. Listen to me. Brotherly love is the pivot point. This is, this is the, this is where the weight of the whole situation rests is on brotherly love. The Bible says again, that love is the fulfilling of the law. We're going to go to Romans, look a couple of verses there, and then we're going to jump into this thing on what, on who is my brother. Who is my brother? Should I love the hobo on the side of the street that as my brother? Well, look at that in just a second. Romans 15 verse one. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Is there a difference between a neighbor and a brother? It says in verse three, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. As brothers in Christ, we are to bear the reproaches and the burdens of our brethren. Um, chapter 14 talks about judging your brother. Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. So this charitably is the outward expression of love, the Christ-like expression of love. And he says, if you grieve your brother with your liberty, with your meat, you will destroy your brother for your meat. He says, this is not charitable. This is not walking in love. And that goes back to this uncleanness and the defrauding and all of all of these things just tie together um, so close it's hard to even separate them out. Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And there he's talking about paying your bills, paying your taxes, paying tribute, paying custom. Um, so owe no man anything but to love one another. You become indebted to your brother and can't pay your bills. Then you stand a, a high chance of defrauding your brother and causing a schism in the church. Pay your bills. Verse 9, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill. Hey, we got to that verse. Told you it was in there somewhere. Praise the Lord. <coughs> he says, 
For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is briefly comprehended in this saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Boy, that simplifies the whole thing, doesn't it? You know, so you say, well, why don't you just leave it that simple? Because we're so complicated in our sin. That's why love does simplify the whole thing. But we're so complicated in our sin that we'd redefine love to make provision for our flesh. So then God has to go through and spell it out because of our no good, rotten depravity. That's why. Otherwise, yeah, it would be that simple. Um, uh, Growing up, my dad always tried to say in the church house there, um, love is our one rule. My pastor here where I go to church. Um, here in Norwood, Missouri, Pastor Reg Kelly, um, he says, we've got one rule in this church. It's love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And then he goes on and says a lot of what I've said today. If you love your brother, you won't steal his wife. If you love your brother, if you love your sister, you won't steal her husband, sisters. <coughs> love is the fulfilling of the law. The, and so some people say, well, then we don't ever need to talk about anything. We just say love. And then you get your Methodists and all these others that just say love, 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 but they never get down into the nitty gritty and brass tacks and their depravity takes over and their churches are given over to lasciviousness and all kinds of wickedness and fornication and now sodomy and all the filth of the world because you never get down to brass tacks. So unfortunately, because of our depravity, we have to dive into some of those other subjects and explain what that means. Now we're going to look at who is my brother. Now in the story of the Good Samaritan, um, the famous story where Jesus said um, to love your neighbor as yourself and the man willing to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Samaritan. We have the neighbor there. Now a neighbor is anybody alive on the face of the earth that you come into proximity with. A brother is different. So 1 Kings 9.13, here we have Hiram talking to Solomon, and he calls him brother. Hiram was the king of Tyre. Tyre in the book of Ezekiel, the king of Tyre, is uh, mentioned by God, and he's used as a type of Satan, and there God addresses Satan as the king of Tyre. Tyre was a place, as T-Y-R-E, Tyre was a city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just north of Israel. They were with in the bounds of the land of Israel that God had given the children of Israel. And if the children of Israel had obeyed God and wiped out the Canaanites like they were supposed to, they would have already wiped out all of them of Tyre and Sidon. Hiram would not be alive. There would not be any Tyre left except the Tyre that Israel owned. And so Solomon would not have needed to make a deal with Hiram because the cedars of Lebanon were within the boundaries of Israel according to God. So they would have owned the cedars of Lebanon. They would have owned Tyre. He wouldn't have needed to make a deal. So this whole deal between, Ty- between Hiram and Solomon falls 
out of the compromise of God's people to be separate from the heathen. You can go back and study that all out. This whole thing um, preaches really strong and really hard. Um, Hiram would be a progenitor of the wicked woman Jezebel and her daughter Athaliah. Between those two women, the seed of David would nearly be extinguished. And and if Satan had um, prospered in that attack and that plan, he would have made God a liar, which is impossible, which is why it didn't work. But Hiram was of Tyre and he was the king of Tyre. He was the king of a wicked country. They were full of idolatry, full of devil worship, full of fornication, full of sodomy, full of incest and sex trade and every kind of wicked and and abominable thing in the world. And here Solomon has made a deal with him to get cedar trees. And at the close of that deal, um, Solomon gave Hiram 20, or it says at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built two houses here, that Hiram, that Solomon gave to Hiram. Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee, a memorial of the 20 years of good business deals between them. So now we have Solomon giving Hiram cities out of Israel. What a mess. Anyway, Hiram shows up and he didn't like the cities. In verse 13, he said, what cities are cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul unto this day. And Hiram sent to the king six score talents of gold, which is just another um, example of Solomon's shrewdness because he gave Hiram 20 cities Hiram didn't like. And Hiram gave him six score talents of gold. 120 talents of gold. Anyway, Solomon was a wheeler and a dealer. But here, Hiram calls him my brother. Was Hiram his brother? A lot of Christians will call lost people brother because of the old hippie movement that came around where everybody's, hey, brother. Well, listen, you ain't necessarily my brother. And then there's another saying that came out, a brother from another mother. And that saying deals with um, the promiscuity of our drug culture where a man would go and have illicit relations with other women and then you would have half brothers running around the hood and they would say hey you're my brother from another mother and they meant it literally and promiscuously and that's the roots of that statement though now in America a lot of people use it philosophically and they just realizing the re- the reality of the fact is that we're all brothers in a philosophical genetic sense if you go back far enough but the brotherhood that the Bible talks about when it talks about brotherly love is not stepbrother, stepsister stuff from promiscuous relationships. And it has nothing to do with the hippie movement. And it has nothing to do with this false idea of the brotherhood of the human race. This has to do with a spiritual brotherhood. We're going to have to look into some of the doctrine of the of brotherhood here. We've got to keep moving. Um, here, Hiram called Solomon his brother. He was not his brother. You know, I believe it's a grief to the Holy Spirit of God whenever Christians misused this word and called blasphemers and God-haters brother for the fellowship of the workplace. You know, a lot of times Christians will put up with more junk from so-called brothers on the workplace that are only philosophically their brothers and genetically their brothers from um, a thousand generations ago or six thousand years ago and they'll call them brother and they'll fellowship with them for the sake of the almighty dollar, but they won't put up with anything at the church house from their supposedly spiritual brothers, which which exposes the lack of Christian love. Go to 1 Kings 20 and verse 32. 
Here we have Ben-Hadad. Ahab, the king, had married into the king of Tyre's family with that wicked woman Jezebel and um, in the process had become more perverted than any of the kings of Israel before him. And um, God had sent a drought. How many of you remember Elijah and Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal and the fire falling from heaven and Elijah and the people all cry, the people all crying out, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. And then Elijah killed the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel nipped the revival in the bud and shut the whole thing down. And Elijah despaired of his life. Well, God knew that the revival wasn't over just because it looked bad. And Elijah was despairing, but God was not despairing. And God began to have mercy on Israel and allow Ahab some victories on the battlefield. Now, these victories, maybe they were a a point of despair with Elijah, who was wondering, why God was allowing such a thing to take place when the nation was still in such sin. But the reality is that God was setting up Ahab. Ahab had had a slight repentance just a just by allowing a, the death of the prophets of Baal. But Ahab wasn't really right with God. Ahab was just in it for the money. He was in it for whatever feels good. He was going to do it. And now God was setting up Ahab with these victories. And Ahab won a couple victories. He got a big head. And he's um, been head at, has run away from from him and they the servants of Ben Hadad came to him in verse 32 of first Kings 20 and said I pray thee let me live and Ahab said and he said is he yet alive he is my brother so here Ahab declares that the wicked king of Syria Syria is his brother we got problems when this happens. Now, Ahab brought the king up in his chariot. They made an agreement that neither one of them were planning on keeping. And a prophet came to Ahab and said, you have let go a man appointed for utter destruction and God is going to destroy your life instead of his life. So here was the end of Ahab's reign due to this right here. This was what set him on the course for total destruction. And this is what made Jezebel um, vulnerable to be destroyed in the manner that God had prophesied through his prophet Elijah. So God was setting all this up. And this whole fall of Ahab took place due to this false brotherhood between Ahab and Ben-Hadad. Ahab should not have called him brother, but his brotherhood with Hiram led to a brotherhood with Ben-Hadad. And that's going to lead to a brotherhood in chapter 22 and verse 6 between Jehoshaphat and Ahab, who really should have been brothers because they were both of the nation of Israel, of the seed of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. So 1 Kings 22 and verse 4, um, here Jehoshaphat is asked by Ahab to go up to war. And he said unto Je- and Ahab said unto Jehoshaphat, that's he there, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. Now, um, in the church of Jesus Christ, it's a family. And in a family, you have equality within the family. The brethren within the family, none of them are better than the other brothers. You might have an older brother that has a little more authority, and you might have a younger brother with a little less authority, but they're still brethren. They still have equal seats at the table, and the father is the head of the house. This is the way the church is set up under Christ. Christ is the head of the church. All ye are brethren. Jesus said, call no man master on earth. And he says, you have one master. Call no man father on earth, for you have one father, and that's your father 
in heaven. That's a um, loose quotation there of what Christ said. And Christ told them, all ye are brethren. So this equality of the believers, the equality within the church draws lost people. It draws wolves in sheep's clothing that see an opportunity to try and take authority over a bunch of people who do not seem in their eyes to have authority over them, even though the church should and does when it's obeying Christ. So the wolves come in and they try and get equality. Now that equality also um, causes a commonality because of the equality of the brethren you have a commonality of wealth you have a commonality of wisdom a commonality of worship a commonality of work i.e the great commission now in the commonality of wealth consider how in acts 4 32 it says that none of them said that anything that they possessed was their own but they had all things in common they distributed to every man according as he had need in that great time of of need there. And then in Acts chapter five, you have Ananias who withheld and Sapphira who withheld part of the price. And Peter told them, was it not thine own? Well, it was in thy, was it not thine own? Well, it was in thine own power. You didn't have to do this. Nobody compelled you to give it. And that shows that while the church has a commonality of wealth, yet there's an individuality within the church. We sat in Galatians four, six or six, four, um, let every man bear his own burden. Let every man bear his own burden. So within the church, you have an individuality of responsibility. Well, you have a commonality of wealth and wisdom and worship and of work. And so that personal responsibility that's um, all through the Bible does not give you the right to neglect your brother or to have um, abundance when your brother has lack, etc. This is basic. We've already studied what brotherly love means. We've looked at it in great detail already just in this lesson. And so that commonality, that brotherly love, the benefits of being part of the family of God are really huge. The benefits are wonderful. The benefits are powerful. The benefits are um, extreme. This is, you know, in, until insurance came along, being part of a church was probably the best way that you could be secure in this life if it was a true church of Jesus Christ because your brothers and sisters will not let you suffer alone because we're brothers and and sisters, what would happen, do you think, in a family where there's 10 kids and it comes around to one kid's birthday and the family falls on hard times and that one kid, there's no money for a birthday cake, there's no money for anything nice, there's no money for a present, that family's on hard times. If they're a family, will those brothers gloat about it or will they all be sad with the other brother? They'll be sad with the other brother. And how many of you think that those other brothers will work as hard as they can to try and make it as nice as possible for that brother? They would work as hard as they could. And that's that brotherly love. <coughs> And that's that brotherly love that we're talking about. That's the brotherly love that um, the Bible is expressing. But what I'm showing you today is that that is attractive to wolves and lost people who want to exploit the benefits of the church and the blessings of brotherly love without contributing brotherly love themselves because they're not brethren. Watch out who calls you brother. Don't just let anybody call you a brother. Here Ahab says, will you go up to battle? Jehoshaphat says, yeah, I am as you are my people, as you, your people, my horses, as your horses. This was not God's will. 
He was unequally yoking together with unbelievers. He was entering into the um, ungodly nation of northern Israel that was in judgment from Almighty God and hoping to get involved in some of these great military victories that had been being won up in the north. And I don't know what all entered into Jehoshaphat's mind, but he made a bad decision. This was all directly related to the fact that he had given his son, the daughter of Ahab. He'd made a deal with Ahab and got a marriage between his house and Ahab's house. And he brought old Athaliah, that old witch, into his home that nearly snuffed his whole line. Now in John chapter 7, Jesus Christ's brethren, the Bible says, did not believe in him. So your physical brethren are not necessarily your brethren either. Go to Matthew 12 and verse 48. Here it says, Well, he yet talked to the people, speaking of Jesus Christ. Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my mother and the same is my brother and my and sister and mother. This is the key. This is who my brother is. Jesus said to the church, all ye are brethren. Go to John chapter 1 and verse 12. The Bible says that to as many as received him, that is Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is the beginning of brotherhood. In order to be a brother, you must be part of a family. There is a family of God. And in order to be part of the family, you got to be under the headship of Christ. How did you know a lot of a lot of dads would say you're not doing that as long as you're under my roof? Well, as long as you want to be under the roof, so to speak, of Christ under his protection and as part of a membership of a church, by the way, um, there's an old saying people used to say about being part of a church that's being under the watch care of the church under the watch care what does that mean the watch care it means we've got your back we're looking out for you we're looking out for each other if you want to be under the, with the benefits and the privileges the privileges of the church and the brotherly love that's being mentioned here you must first become a son of god now in Romans 8 verse 15 it says for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry Abba Father. In order to be a brother you've got to have a daddy that's the same daddy. Hebrews talks about those who are not really sons and it calls them bastards. It says if you are um, if you receive not chastening whereof all are partakers then are ye bastards and not sons. Go to Galatians 4. That word there that we um, Bastard means illegitimate child. And so that illegitimate child claims to be a child of God, but does not receive chastening from God. And the Bible says he's illegitimate. He's a fake. He's claiming a right of of an heir that does not belong to him. And that heir comes in here in Galatians, the heir being the one that is um, going to receive the benefits of the estate in the will. Galatians 4 and verse 5. 
It says to, um, to redeem them that were under the law. This is that Jesus Christ, God was sent forth his son to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So this introduces the concept of an heir, H-E-I-R, a beneficiary of the will and testament, a possessor of all that belongs to the father and that will be given you upon the death of the testator, the one who has made the will. Now, Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, when he died on the cross, enacted and brought into effect all the benefits of the heir of the will and testament of the New Testament made in his blood and made us joint possessors of his kingdom through faith that is in him. This is where the brotherhood comes from. The Bible talks about um, the body of Christ here in Hebrews. Go over to Hebrews chapter 2. We've got to move quick. We're just going to touch this and then move back to the end of our text in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and close it out. Hebrews 2, 9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Pay attention here. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here we have the many sons being brought unto glory. And look what it says as we go forward. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power of de- uh, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, toward to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So here we have Christ being made a body, that Jesus Christ received a body, though he was already God already existent, as it says in the same passage, by whom are all things, and that he took not on him the nature of angels. When he was picking and choosing what he would, he, what he would become, he chose to become a man so that he could partake of our sufferings and we could partake of his body and we could be brethren to Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of brotherhood. The doctrine of brotherhood rests upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians four, it talks about the whole family. Go there real quickly. The family of God is doctrine in the Bible. Some people say, uh, we all God's children. That's not true. The Bible says that Jesus called many the children of their father, the devil. I'm telling you today to be part of the brotherhood and enjoy the benefits of brotherhood. You must be adopted into God's family. You must be born again by the power of God. You can fake it. You can try and get involved so you can get the equality and try and get authority. You can try and get the commonality and extort money. You can try and do whatever you want to be part of the organization, but unless you're 
placed in the organism, the family of God, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Being part of a church won't do it for you. Ephesians 4 and verse 1 here, he says, I, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And he says here in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And then down here in verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and contract compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working uh, in the the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So God has given his, he has made a body and he has put the brethren into the body, into the family of God. I lost the place where um, it speaks of the whole family is named. You can look it up, do a search for a whole family in the Bible and find it. We're going to move on because we are out of time. But here, this doctrine of brotherhood is directly related to brotherly love. As we look at our text, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you for ye, ye yourselves are taught of God. Philippians 2, for it is God which worketh in you both to do and to will of his good pleasure. So here he says, for ye are taught of God. Philippians 2 says, God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This command for brotherly love must stem from God. The command comes from God. The power comes from God. The ability comes from God. The outworking comes from God. You cannot love as brethren unless God is loving through you. If you think that you can love um, as brethren without God loving through you, you're probably um, probably don't even know God. Second Corinthians one. Or you're very deceived. This this is absolutely essential because in our day, this whole concept of brotherly love, of the church loving one another as brethren, has been taken and distorted and twisted and misapplied to worldly solidarity, which just means standing by people who are going through trouble and acting like your brethren when you're not. Second Corinthians 1, 21. Now he which establishes with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. So this anointing comes from God. First John two twenty seven tells us that the anointing teaches us everything that we need to know so that we need not have another teacher. The world wants to give us a false brotherly love. The world wants to teach, give us a false unity. The world takes the word of God that Jesus Christ preached about loving one another and being one and applies it to antichrist doctrines of world peace apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The brotherly love that God is talking about here in the Bible is taught by God. Um, to go ahead and read that verse in 1 John 2, 27, it says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Go to John 14 and verse 26. 
Even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. This brotherly love is not a worked up love. This brotherly love is not a forced love. This brotherly love doesn't need police officers to make it happen. This brotherly love is taught by God to God's people. The head of the family teaches his family to love one another. And he chastens and avenges those within his own house who do damage to each other and despise one another. In John 14 and verse 26, Jesus had promised the comforter to come. He says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So the Holy Ghost of God then is that which is God which anoints you. And that Holy Ghost of God moves into a believer, as the Bible says, you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And when the Holy Spirit of God moves into the heart of a believer, he begins to work brotherly love in the believer. And that brotherly love is an outworking of the love of God for you in me. That's what God's telling us to have. That's what God's telling us to increase in and abound in more and more and more. Father, help us. Please take this, my mess, Lord God. Your word's not a mess, but I'm a mess, Lord. And my attempts to teach it and preach it have been a mess. I pray, Lord God, that you'd take it and use it in spite of me and my weakness, Father. And I pray that you'd make it a blessing, Lord, to those that hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.